Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. This is our first episode of 2021, so I'm going to be looking to the year ahead and specifically looking at some of the big trends that marketers are going to face as we enter this new decade and say good riddance to 2020. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. Today, as it's our first episode of 2021, we'll be looking ahead to the year and specifically look at some of the big trends that are facing marketers as we enter a new decade and say good riddance to 2020. I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Calladine, who's Head of Media Futures and Business Intelligence at Cara Global. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Dave. How are you? Are you well? How are things? First things first, before we get into it, how's it going? Um, how are you getting on in lockdown? Are you? I know we chatted off air for a sec, but how are you feeling? I'm okay. I'm able to function pretty well living from home, living at work, as they say these days, working from mm. home, living at work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm able to function pretty well. Um, I've got quite a lot of shops within easy walk and stuff. I've got some quite nice walks near to me and things like that. So you're you're surviving, all, and everyone's healthy and keeping well. Yes, very very lucky. Most important. Uh, regular contact with family members, and everybody seems to be okay at the moment. Very good. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, as I say, thanks a million for joining me. What we're going to like on the trends report. I know you've been doing it for around ten years. Um, I'm a big fan of it. I've I've read all of them, I think. But just before we get into it, you mentioned that this year was very different. So what was that? Was that just because of the year that was 2020, the global pandemic? Or was there something more significant or, or something else apart from the pandemic that you said this one was different to any other year you've done? No, it really was the pandemic. I think it was really the the sense that this one had to be a really, really good one. I mean, it's not, you know, we, we always take an enormous amount of pride over it. So it's not like we ever phone it in. But mm. um, what we really felt was that this one had to both take an awful lot of things into consideration, but also when you're looking at trends, when you're looking at futures, make a very informed point of view as to mm. where we will be, where we will be in the near future and where we will be in, in a few years time. So to, you know, not to not to say anything outlandish and for whatever we do say to be able to back it up with the evidence and to say you know the reason for this is this so so for example i was i mean i've been writing versions of this since the summer because we actually initially started doing this as an update to the 2020 trends um Mm -hmm. and so we've, we've sort of been been doing versions of it and it's just sort of evolved in that time but i mean i think about in about august or september we wrote the lines in saying you know it's very likely that by the start of 2021 we will have vaccines and this is likely to have this sort of thing so we were saying that before we even had the vaccines because we were just reading widely around the subject Mm, yeah i guess and it's looking at these trends it's hard given but given so much change in such a relatively short period of time last year i imagine it was quite a quite a job but it was yeah it's a brilliant it's a brilliant report um so but also but also i suppose i mean mostly with when previous years we've really just talked about the media trends Mm. and we talked about you know, people are doing this more often, you know, there, there's this new thing of, you know, lots of location-based marketing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this one, we had to talk about society. We had to talk about um, more societal trends than we have done in any previous year. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we'll get into in a second. It's one of the things I really liked about the report because it talked about some really, really big, as you say, societal trends and things that were happening um, in culture. But then in the second part of it, it kind of talked about some of the more imminent media, you know, hot topics, that kind of stuff. But then the last thing, which again, which I really liked was that you, you brought those two 
worlds together and looked at the intersection points between that. So um, it is a brilliant. It's a brilliant. Uh, so before I forget, by the way, if anyone's listening, and we'll put it in the Irish Times paper, if anyone's listening, where can they go? Where can they download the full report? So we've got it on our website. We've also got it on SlideShare. I think the the safest thing to do is to search. And I actually just tested this before we came on air. So I think if you do a search just for CARA 2021 media trends, okay. you should get through to the CARA website. And then there's a download link there. Um, and if you search for CARA 2021 on SlideShare, you should hopefully find it there as well. Great. But also, if you find me on Twitter and I'm D-A-N-C-A-L-L, uh, Dan Cal on Twitter. It's my pinned tweet. Okay, well. great. So hopefully people find that. And there's an article in today's Our Science, which is very, very short synopsis of some of, some of the big thoughts in there. That, um, But also we have the, the link in there. So, okay, brilliant. Um, what we'll do is I think we just start off by having a chat around some of the some of the, the big societal trends, because you say it, it, that was a, a key difference in the report this year. So the first one we want to chat about is um, FOMO to FOGO. So, and again, this is this is driven by the pandemic, um, and it's one that I think applies to particularly some older or um, more vulnerable groups. But it's this idea that people are have moved from um, fear of missing out to fear of going out. So, on the face of it, that's just something that's happened. But I think in the in the report, you talk about things that have driven things that have happened as a result of that. So, there's been really lots of an explosion in e-commerce, a rise in innovations from like. Amazon Explorer and that kind of stuff. So can you talk to me a little bit about that trend just at a top line level? Yeah, so so what I mean from FOMO to FOGO, it's not actually, um, I, I'd love to say that I thought up that term. It was something that I think somebody, somebody came up with in an article, I think in the summer last year, uh, but it struck me as a really good way of encapsulating mm. what, what's happened because, you know, there'd been a, quite a long period of FOMO of people just being jealous of other people's Instagram feeds, that sort of thing. And then suddenly we had this thing where there was a complete fear of missing out. Sorry, instead of a fear of missing out, a fear of going out. Mm -hmm. And so we we wrote that as an initial idea back in the summer. And when I was presenting it to people and talking about, you know, possibles for what we might include in the trend this year, in, in August and September, people were saying, yeah, is that really still going to be a thing? You mm. know, is are we still going to be scared to go out? And, mm. and I was also talking to colleagues quite a lot younger than me who said, yeah, you know, people aren't scared to go out. They want to, you know, they're, they're chomping at the bit and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I think we've been proved right in that I think there is, you know, a, a genuine fear of going out among some sections of society. Certainly when you look at, in London, I think at the moment, something like one in 30 has COVID. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be in, in contact with any of them. Thank you very much. So I think there is there is this sort of fear. And I think that does change how people live their lives. You know, you spend more time indoors. I'm currently inside for about 23 and a half hours um, mm. a day. I always tell people I'm watching more TV now than I have at any time since I was about 16. Mm -hmm. I'm also reading more books. So just much more, many more at-home experiences, obviously much less going out and doing things in the, in the hospitality industry and stuff. Um, and I think this sort of changes your perspective. So not only do you need to work out how you can get things delivered to you and how you can still have fun with your friends while you're sitting on your sofa and they're sitting on theirs. But I think also you have to sort of think, how do we react to this? How much of this is going to remain? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people like me may have um, sort of thought, well, actually, I used to go out four or five nights a week, but staying at home and watching TV, you know, finishing work at seven o'clock, not having mm -hmm. to commute, 
having supper, then coming in and watching a couple of hours of TV and having an early night. This is actually really enjoyable. Yeah. I could actually get used to this. I think there are going to be some quite big changes which actually persist even mm-hmm. when we're allowed to go out again. I'm sure there will be a bit of a sort of rebound of people going crazy for a while when we feel like we're allowed to. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's quite a lot of people who you know, really enjoy a night in watching TV, really enjoy catching up with all the box sets. Mm. But also they know how to do things like order their groceries online. Mm. They, you know, they've they've got a range of suppliers, you know, maybe independent food suppliers. They know their local whatevers. They know how they can they can get such and such. So I think we will see some things remaining um, mm-hmm. that will have a real impact on how brands actually market themselves. And on that point, um, and sorry, it was something I meant to ask at the start. I think the overall theme of the article I read it, which was talking about, you said 2021 was going to be the year of emotionally intelligent marketing. So I know we touch on quite a lot of that as we go through the trends, but would you just give me, what did you mean by that? What do you mean by that that year, the year of emotionally intelligent marketing? What does that mean? So a report we published last year was called the Brand EQ Report, and that was based on a piece of original research we did Um with people in, I think it was 50 different countries, and we asked them how personally empathetic they thought different brands were. So we gave them a list of brands, um, some our clients, some not our clients, and we asked them to, uh, to, to, to say how much they felt the brand had a, had a sort of sense of empathy. And then we were able to uh, um, we were able to then compare those answers with things like stock market results and, right. and uh, financial results. And what we found was that the brands that were perceived to be showing empathy generally did a lot better because people, you know, sort of felt warmer to them. And there were, um, you know, yeah, there, there was a very strong correlation with how much people liked brands and how successful those those brands were. And so when we were doing when we were writing these trends, we wanted to continue with that theme because I think another thing that's come out of this is that um, this is one of those, you know, we're all in this together yeah. moments. Brands can't go on as if nothing happened last yeah. year. Brands have to acknowledge that their customers' lives have, you know, in many cases changed quite fundamentally. Mm. And so you can't simply do you know, just a quick update of the campaign you did a year ago. Mm. One thing I found fascinating, actually, was when I was, you know, in sort of April, May, when I was just leaving my flat for half an hour a day, popping down maybe, you know, a few times a week to my local store. You know, if you look at the look at some of the the, the glossy magazines, with many of those, nothing had happened. You mm. know, they was they still had the same film stars on the cover. They still had the same, and it was it took quite a while till. You know, the women's magazine started putting people like NHS workers on the cover. Mm. Vogue did it after Vogue did it a few months in and things. And so I think if you think about that as an analogy, brands just have to say, you know, and also brands themselves are all working from home or a lot of them working from home. They have to say, uh, you know, we have to show empathy with our with our customers. We have to show kindness. Smaller companies than ours, you know, neighborhood restaurants and things mm-hmm. are putting a lot of effort into and, and their own resources into providing care packages for health workers, shipping hot food to them and stuff. So, you know, we're a multinational. We should definitely be doing things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's a great point because I totally agree. And and I think at the start, maybe well, nobody knew how long it was going to go on. And, you know, you mentioned it a minute ago that we were in lockdown, then we were kind of allowed back out. 
And certainly in Ireland, we couldn't be trusted. We went out and we went mad. And now we're in a bigger lockdown now. Um, and you just knew it was going to happen. But I think when I think about brands, I think there's a difference between, I'd like to say empathy in, you know, not not in so much what they say, but what they do. I think I'm, I'm done with all those campaigns of soft tinklings on melancholy on the piano and, yeah. you know, Zoom screens and I that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I think there were there were too many of those, and they were too similar. I think another really interesting thing about that actually was it showed so many people using stock footage and uh, you know stock video and just editing them together mm. because they couldn't get out and they couldn't film anything. So I think yeah, that somebody does a supercut video which sort of um, merged about twenty different brands' ads into those, and you couldn't really tell couldn't one tell from the difference. Other. No, absolutely. Yeah, I knew I found that myself and, you know, yeah, we're all in it together. I'm going to skip the second one because it's the donut trend, which was about how people are staying away from the city. It's got somewhat related to the first trend. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to jump into the third um, societal trend, which is all about connected lives. Now, again, as we know, this has gone on, the, the pandemic escalated growth in connected devices. And obviously, as we spend more time at home, uh, we want to get the most, the, the best out of that experience. So we need better connections, faster speeds. You know, 5G is really going to help, as you mentioned in your report about the Internet of Things. So I think this is a really big one and it touches on lots of different areas. But in your report, you talk about fitness in particular um, and you talk about a normalization of paid for subscription services. So Apple and Peloton and that kind of thing. Can you Can you expand on that a little bit and just thinking about how brands should think about this and how they connect with consumers through these um, through new services and, and things that they offer. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so the, the main point of this is that it sort of slowly crept up on us in that when we think about connected devices, we really think about laptops and mobiles. Mm. But actually, the number of connected devices people have in their homes, according to some research from Deloitte, went up by more than 50% in the last five years or so, from less than four to more than six. And I was talking to a colleague about this last week, and she said, that's per household, right? And I said, no, no, it's per person. Or, right. the, you know, according to Deloitte, it's per person. Because, and when you think about it, you know, yes, laptops, yes, mobiles, um, but also things like smart speakers. Mm. So, you know, not only things like... Um, Alexa, but also people like Sonos. Um, you get things like connected TV. You get TV sticks like Chromecast. You get, you know, all, yeah. the, all the smart watches, activity bands. So anyway, all this sort of stuff has has crept up, and I think we haven't really thought about it in terms of how brands can fit into the ecosystem. So you know, how do you fit onto somebody's smart speaker? How do you fit onto somebody's smart watch? And as we move on to the higher end devices like Peloton. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't overdo this. I think there's only about a million active Peloton subscriptions in the world. And, you know, the, the people who have Peloton tend to be quite noisy people. Mm. Uh, you know, how do you how would you get your brand onto onto the Peloton screen or how would you get uh, your brand onto you know, in, into one of the other ones like Zwift, which is largely software based. Mm. So I think we just need to how need need to work out the new sorts of ways these things are working. Um, if there's a subscription, is there any way what you can do can be bundled into the script subscription? Mm-hmm. We're certainly not saying that brands should be launching their own hardware and their own devices unless it's absolutely relevant to them. But you know, how can you? partner with the people who are already successful or spot the people who may be successful in a couple of years and try to get into those. And then the other thing is, you know, if people are spending a lot of time on a Peloton, if that's like the latest thing they're doing, what other activities are being displaced? Mm-hmm. And also with, with Peloton, it might well be that, um, 
if somebody is you know suddenly has a gym in their own home and it's not just a piece of piece of equipment that just sits in the corner because you know you just feel guilty about because you you spent a lot of money on it and you never use it but it's one that has you know regular diary updates regular things that Mm. you have to actually log on to do so what is that displacing how is that making people live different lives are they living more healthy lives and therefore can you target them with more healthy options to what Mm. they're doing so i think there's there's lots of ways that brands can think about it both in a media sense but also just in a in a sort of activity displacement sense as Mm. well yeah and as you say these are the first few that we talk about are the kind of bigger societal trends so less of an obvious route in you know changing fundamentally changing anyone who's listening their business model but they're just interesting things that are that are going on that you need to be aware of in consumers lives mm-hmm. um the next one again is it's it's not something that's new specifically but it's it, it i want to just chat to you about what you meant by it so the trend that you have is called respecting privacy so mm-hmm. we've covered this quite a lot in the podcast and it's definitely an area of increased importance so can you talk me through why you pull that one out as a trend specifically, um, given that it's been talked about for a while? Um, what have you seen happening? Why do you think it's um, what's different about this year, if anything? And, you know, what are the big issues like increased concerns around privacy, hacking, that kind of stuff um, and what the implications are for this year and beyond? Sure. So when we've done this report in the past, we've generally tried to steer away from the the sort of more the sort of more political issues or the more sort of serious issues, I suppose, possibly, um, and focus more on, you know, here are specific things that brands can do around particular, you know, bits of technology or something. But it just seemed like this wasn't something that we could ignore, both in terms of how Apple and uh, and other people are, you know, essentially marketing themselves on, we are the most private, you know, mm-hmm. your data stays safe. What happens on the iPhone stays on the iPhone, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You've also got things like Brave Browser, which is a browser specifically designed to not allow yourself to be tracked. You've also got things like DuckDuckGo, which isn't particularly new, but it's suddenly seeing a hockey stick right. sort of shape of usage. Um, and so you often get, when you look at data on you know, surveys of how people feel about privacy, you often get really uh, contradictory results. But when you look at other proxies, like the number of people using things like DuckDuckGo, Mm. it definitely seems to be accelerating in terms of how many people are concerned about their privacy. Mm -hmm. So I think we wanted to do something about this, but then also what it, why it was so, why it was so interesting was that you, you have this situation where because of the pandemic, you're now actually giving, you know, essentially your name and address when you check in to mm-hmm. go out for the evening, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you're allowed to. And if I, you know, if we'd been talking a year ago and one of us suggested that, it would have just been like, that's never going to yeah. happen. People won't do that. Yeah. You know, people will, you'll, you know, some people might do that, but, you know, it's like Foursquare. It's going to be the completely minority yeah. thing that people will actually say, hey, I'm a such and such or something. So I think, I think privacy is a really interesting point and there's a number of interesting companies and and prototypes which are coming along like Tim Berners-Lee's new thing um, mm. called Inrupt, where essentially you own your own data. And I think also we're potentially going to see things like uh, some sort of digital proof of vaccination or some sort of digital passport. So we wanted to write something about this. And I think our point with this really is that because people are increasingly concerned about it and because there's an increasingly sort of complex legal framework, brands just need to be completely sure what they're Mm. doing, completely transparent. And it leads to all sorts of areas like direct consumer because then the brand knows the data rather than relies on somebody else to control the data for them. 
And again, we'll, we'll cover this in a second. I guess that it would increase privacy. You just get more blind spots. People are harder to target and people fall out yeah. of the net in terms of targeting and that kind of thing. Um, so the last one, which I want to talk about is the great divide. And this, when I was reading this one, you know, because all the other trends are talking about how, you know, even the sentiment culturally, we're all in it together and we're connected. We've never been more connected. And you think about it in a world that's never been more connected. We've never been more divided, I think, was was what came out of that. We've been never been more polarized as a world. So I really like this trend. And again, we could probably talk about this in for ages on itself. But in your report, you, you highlighted that 81% of Americans say the Internet has made life better for them, but only 58% believe it's made life better for society at large. That's a really interesting point. So the whole idea about Facebook and whether they're, or any social media, whether they're um, a media organization, a publisher, or they're just a platform. So anybody can say anything on social platform and it's worrying the amount of people that take news from Facebook, as you point out. So can you talk to me about this great divide and what happens as a result of it or, you know, how important it is that we, and how brands, how, what, what it means to brands? So again, this was one of the ones that we would have steered well clear of in previous years, but this year it felt like, it was something that we had to address. And in fact, you know, we were writing this sort of, uh, well, we were writing the whole presentation sort of October onwards. Um, we published it and then, you know, the week after we published it, that things got even more, more polarized in America by the mm. looks of it. So we really wanted to do something about this and we wanted to take the point that, you know, there were so many different issues and it was also so confusing for brands because there were so many really vocal people, you know, saying saying how they felt, saying what brands should do, sort of complaining about this, boycotting that. Boycotts not only from the left, boycotts used to be sort of largely the preserve of the left, I think, but now you get boycotts from the right or, mm -hmm. you know, but, but even terms like left and right. So, so what we wanted to do was to really sort of talk about how the landscape had changed, put put a couple of things in about, you know, possible explanations for how the, why the landscape has changed, but also to say, and, you know, we're very conscious that this may, this may turn around and bite us in, in future times, um, that we do see things getting better, partly because of a change in administration in America mm -hmm. to people who show much more empathy and much more conciliation, but also just the fact that there needs to be so much international cooperation around things like the vaccine, around mm. things like the virus. And I think it's one of the, you know, governments have very, very different views on many things, but something like 90% or 95% of the world's governments are all on the same page when it comes to, to fighting the vaccine. So mm. I think we are pretty positive, but in terms of what brands should be doing, I mean, I the analogy I use is that you know, in the same way that we talk about brands having empathy, brands are like people in that I know where I stand on very many issues, but I don't really walk around the street wearing streets wearing badges. Mm. I don't go on very many marches. But if you were to say, where do you stand on such and such? I would say, well, this is my mm -hmm. point of view and this is, you know, this is why I've made that decision. And so for brands, I don't think brands need to be making an active stand and issuing tweets on every subject that comes along. But if somebody were to say to them, where do you stand on such and such, such and such, then to actually know where they stand mm. and to know the history of the company and to know, uh, you know, what sort of context that that sits in and everything. It's one that, again, it, it's like anything, it, it polarizes opinion hugely because I think it's one thing to have a point of view or a position on on an issue that could be, you know, societally important. But then there's a fine line between 
doing something about it or, or adding to that narrative for the greater good or being seen to be opportunistic and paying lip service to it and, you know, basically just yeah. tailgating the idea for culture. And I think quite a lot of brands maybe, maybe have probably been a little bit opportunistic. Not all, there's been great examples of brands doing it. And the, the counter argument is probably that anything any brand can do that can raise awareness of something is a good thing. But then Again, when we talked about it on the podcast, you get into what, what, how do they behave in the boardroom? How, how does that yeah. in the corridors and culture when nobody's watching? How do they, you know, how do they stack up in these things? You can have a point of view on it, but I don't know. I and, think you have to be genuine. And that's the thing because it because these days it's so easy to to find these things out. Mm-hmm. These days it's very easy to see the the demographic composition of a company's board of yeah. directors, for example. So the company might come along and say something. But then, you know, it just takes a tweet for somebody to say, okay, but here's a screen grab of your, yeah. you know, of, of your corporate homepage and it shows this, 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 or um, here's, you know, here's a piece of material that your company mm-hmm. produced 20 years ago and how do you now feel about this or something? And so you, yeah, I mean, you I mean, all this careful. sort of stuff has accelerated and, and it's, again, it, it comes back to the, the brand empathy, really. Brands just need to have empathy for the world in which they're living yeah. and who their consumers are and, and how their consumers feel about it or yeah. how, their, how their customers rather feel about things. Yeah, it's a good point. I like your analogy about, you know, brands are like people, so we all have beliefs, but we don't necessarily have to, you know, broadcast them or march them <laughs> in the streets on every issue. So, yeah, uh, it's a good point. We're going to just talk about some of the the smaller, the hot topics, the trends in media, which again, these will be smaller type things, technology led. I just want to get, you know, we go through a couple of them. Some of them are in the, in relatively similar space. So we can talk about them collectively. But the first one, again, because it's a bit like for years and years and years, it was the year of mobile. Every year was the year of mobile. And now, now I think the last few years, I'm reading about AR and VR and, and QR. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's called The Camera's New Life. So we have heard a lot about QR and AR over the last 10 years, but never really, it's never really taken off. But in your report, you're saying this time it's for real because the stars are aligned for them. The technology is better. It's not, a, I remember before it was a clunky app that you had to download and the, the, you know, it just wasn't a good user experience. But now technology is better. It's built into hardware. It's built into platforms. So you think, and also given everything that's gone on in the world, um, the timing just seems to be right. So um, tell me a bit more about this. Tell me why you think it's worth brands getting involved and testing in these areas in 2021 and what they can test and learn. Sure. So I think I think there's a couple of different stories. So I think the story with augmented reality is it's slowly been growing, but it's largely been growing among sort of very young demographics. So we went, I mean, I think augmented reality, I think I was first playing with it about 10 years ago or so. Um, I remember uh, <laughs> I remember sort of the phone I was using at that point wouldn't really cope with it. And it kept on, you know, the experiences I was trying to load kept on falling over and stuff. But what we've seen is a gradual sort of, you know, and a gradual but very steady growth in mm-hmm. the number of people being involved with it, particularly helped by apps like um like snapchat and what snapchat said uh, i think it was late last year was that something like 75 percent of their users use augmented reality every day and when you look at the numbers Mm -hmm. that means about 200 million people snapchat users only are using augmented reality every day so i guess you could probably double that and add Mm -hmm. a bit for all the other different apps including instagram that has it integrated so probably something like 500 million half a billion people using augmented reality every day and as an industry, we kind of think of it as this thing that only, you know, that, that has a very, very limited use. But what was really interesting for me 
during the pandemic. And, and to be quite honest, at the start of the pandemic, I said to my boss, OK, I think my role is going to have to change quite a lot because some of what I do is to introduce, uh, you know, colleagues and, and clients to interesting new startups who can do things. And augmented reality is a classic example of that. And I just thought, well, nobody's going to want any of this sort of stuff because what they're going to want is the stuff which is really, really proven to work, mm. not the sort of the fancy 10 percent you know, the fancy sort of let's experiment with a bit of this in our budget sort of stuff. But actually, the time is perfect for augmented reality because if you're stuck on your sofa yeah. and you can't go to the shop, then the shop can come to you. Yeah. We've seen some really interesting examples. Uh, you know, Amazon, I think it was only in the States, but they all launched an app where um, you could actually buy furniture. You could use, you know, you could look through your phone. I'm sorry, I'm for people listening on on the podcast, I'm actually doing um, doing gestures with my hands at this point. But um, you could look through your phone to you know to a corner in your room and put a new armchair mm. there or something like that. And that sort of thing just makes you know it makes perfect sense yeah. when you can't get out to the shops. But also potentially trying things on and and all those sorts of things. So suddenly they were so much more relevant. But then when with the case of QR codes, QR codes. It was almost like the punchline to an industry joke in that, um, you know, I'm sure so many people, so many clients over the past 10 years or so have been talked to about QR codes, have had people like me coming in and demonstrate them. And, uh, you know, and, and very rarely did people go for it in the West because it just wasn't uh, it wasn't a habit that we in the West had ever got to. Whereas, you know, you see examples in Asia mm. where 70 percent of people or whatever use QR codes. But what happened was that um, QR codes were perfect for things like track and trace solutions. So when you wanted to go to a restaurant or a bar, you suddenly had to scan a QR code to identify where you were so that it, it could log you as being there. And so suddenly you had something like, and there were some stats that came out of the States, but covering Europe as well, saying that between 50% and a third of people will use QR codes on a weekly basis. Right. And so suddenly from almost nobody using QR codes to, you know, tens of millions of people using QR codes over the space of a couple of months. Suddenly you got this technology, which has been around for 10 years, yeah. is really robust, works really well. And suddenly, you know, tens of million, millions of people know how to use it. So next time they're confronted with one, oh, we know how to do mm. this. And then also, you know, again, you had to download a special app, app which was a QR reader. Yeah. But then I think about five years ago, both Android and iOS just integrated it into the technology. Yeah. So when your phone, when the camera on your phone sees a QR code, it knows what to do with yeah. it. And it just gives you on screen a little thing to, to tap. Yeah. So if suddenly millions of people are doing these things and you're a brand, then you can start to include it within your campaign materials. You can start to think about how you would actually use this mm. as a tool within within what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, and I think that was for me. It was big. The, building it into the hardware technology just made it easier because no one was going to download different apps and open and then find it in your damn phone. Which is I was always looking. Where is that thing again? Yeah, Where's yeah, it? Yeah. So it was just a horrible experience. So and again with augmented reality, you used to have to download an augmented reality app mm. and then point it at something, and it's kind of like well, it's too clunky. Yeah. So so if you're if you're a brand who wants to put something on your uh, you know on one of your product boxes or something, you have to get people to download an app first, yeah. which is obviously it's not going to happen. People don't do that No, not yeah, going to happen. Gonna but I, but that, interestingly, that was about, you know, contactless engagement. And the next trend I want to talk about is about that as well. It's about screen-free media. So again, I've mixed opinions on this. I think 
for voice search and that kind of thing, for utility, for things that one like how to do this or, you know, cinema listings or weather or you know, things like that, fairly simple utility. I think it's great. I can't imagine how a brand would get involved in like voice search in terms of a product level search because it just can't, imagine. you know, we can take in a full page of Google listings on, on with our eye in seconds and we can scan to what we want. Can't imagine how that would work in audio. So just want to talk about that because there's no doubt that connected homes and and they're practically giving the things away at the price, you know, the, it, it, people buy yeah, it yeah. As, a, as a connected speaker and and the, and the kind of functionality of voice or voice assistant is free essentially. So what should brands do in this space? What what would you be advising brands to do again? Because this isn't about some smaller things that I think you need to be aware of to tap into. What's your view on that and where might it go? Sure. So, so there's a couple of things. So one is, so one is specifically this trend isn't, you know, it's the year of voice. And I was talking to a colleague a couple of months ago and she said, seriously, Dan, you know, this trend has to be renamed because we can't be saying to people it's the year of voice for the fifth year in a row, you know. And uh, and, and I said, well, that's, that's not what we're saying. We, we need to rename it, as you say. But what we're trying to say is it's not voice, it's audio, it's sort of everything. And then eventually we came up with this phrase, screen-free media, because it's the idea yes, it's smart speakers and it's talking to your speakers and it's voice search and stuff, which includes things like, do people know how to pronounce, you know, the Nissan car that begins with a Q if people are searching, if people, if people are thinking of that, or do people in other countries know how to, you know, know how to say your, your brand name, uh, which might be really cool for you and you managed to get the Instagram handle for it but actually to how do people pronounce it so part of it is that mm. but then the other thing is just the acknowledgement that um, a lot of the media you know that we consume doesn't come with a screen attached and in fact you know obviously we're, we're talking about this on a podcast and just the you know the realization that Spotify for example spent something like a billion dollars last year um, to build up its armory of podcast content and podcast technologies mm. and that they know that if they can get you know i think it's currently about 20 percent of their spotify users listen to podcasts but if they can turn that into 50 percent in a couple of years then suddenly they've got this huge advertising medium that that they own if you know mm. if, if they become one of the the dominant podcast players so there's just huge amounts of money in it so a we're listening to a lot more and you know podcasts used to be seen as a con, as a as a commuter medium yeah but now they're very much seen as a sort of pottering around the home medium mm. or a you know this is what you listen to instead of watching breakfast tv when you're having breakfast or something and the fact that because so many people are listening on phones, you can start to target people in similar sorts of ways to if they were watching YouTube on their phone yeah. or if they were consuming any other sort of medium on their phone. But then also there have been some really interesting technological advances in the last year so that you can now actually respond to audio advertising by talking. Mm. So one of our agencies, Visium, did this really interesting campaign uh, last year for NARS, the cosmetic brand, where if you were listening to Spotify on a smart speaker and you were in the right demographic, you'd get this ad, you'd hear this ad. And at the end of the ad, it would say, would you like a free sample? If so, right. speak at this point. And then it would take you through this this pretty simple process. Right, yeah. And then a few days later, you, you get this free sample. So that's pretty revolutionary yeah. in the world of audio. You can't do that with radio. No. You can't do that with many other media. So suddenly audio... Is this is potentially this response-based medium, mm. and and I think that sort of technology is only going to improve. So, in a couple of years, we might be somewhere 
incredible with that sort of technology yeah. where where it recognizes you know men versus women's voices mm-hmm. recognize different members of the household all those sorts of things mm. yeah it's definitely one to watch um the next one is going to be uh, the ears of our partners. The Irish Times is going to prick up here because it's, you call it the, a decade of paid. And in the report, you talk about the New York Times and, and it is, look, it's a poster child for a legacy brand transforming its business model completely and, and, and dragging itself into a digital age and shifting from an ad model to an ad plus, well, it's a predominantly a subscription model, subscription plus advertising model. There's not many New York Times. The success stories are relatively thin on the ground for, you know, for those type of, of brands. But it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal job they've done. So a couple of questions here, because you, you, you kind of say that we're, we're entering into an era where we talked about it earlier on. There's a normalization in terms of paying for content. It used to be something that you laugh at, you know, pay for content. Everything's free and that's the expectation. But yeah. there seems to be a greater a normalization to people paying for content. But Two things from up there, because firstly, the content, the paid model means that there's no ads in it because it's either ad funded or, or you know, subscription. So if I opt in subscription, I don't want any ads. That reduces the supply of inventory in the market. It makes people, people probably with money, disposable income harder to reach. They You develop these blind spots. So what are your thoughts on, on the era of paid for content and what it means for advertisers? And secondly, I also read at the same time that we're we're entering into an era of subscription fatigue. How many subscriptions mm-hmm. can a household have before they tap out? Um, so, and they seem to be contradictory. They seem to be kind of going against one another. So what are your thoughts on that? Where, where, what's your position on this whole area? Well, we, we call it the decade of paid because, well, partly because um, Chris Anderson's book, Free, which was really influential about how, you know, almost everything was going to operate on a freemium model, um, is now, you know, just over 10 years old. And we kind of thought, okay, they had a good, they had a good decade's run with that. And now that, but now things seem to be shifting. But also, I, I think it was just the acknowledgement that ad funded is not the only model online. Mm. And, it, you know, certainly 10 years ago, it was sort of seen ad funded is the only model. When the App Store came online, you know, it was, it was pretty rare for apps to be actually charging you things. Whereas now, if you think about games, yes, almost all games are free, but then you have to start paying or, you know, or, or they become pretty tiresome, some of them. So so it, it was sort of the idea that, that, that things were changing. It was also the idea that, you know, we don't really talk about ad blocking as much as we as we possibly should, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. And then also you have, uh, so, so, you know, a lot of people aren't really seeing ads at all. And then also you have the changes coming with Apple's new operating system, which will make it really hard for advertisers using in-app advertising to retarget people, for example. And, you know, we imagine ad revenue from those sorts of things to fall. So I think an awful lot of publishers are going to start to or are going to have to really sort out how they can get people to pay for their content mm. or other ways to monetize, whether it you know, be merch events or all that sort of stuff, and then have the content as a lost leader at the start. So, so I think this is kind of the landscape we're moving into. I think for advertisers, there will always be advertising inventory, but I think some of the really good quality stuff will start to be Behind, or will sort of continue to be behind a paywall and increasingly be behind a paywall. And they need to work out how they work with those sorts of publishers, but also whether there's more of a scope for creating their own content, for co-creating content, mm. for doing things like, uh, you know, product placement. I think increasingly when you watch Netflix, certainly on the sort of more reality end of things, 
there's product placement. I mean, yeah. things like uh, with a lot of the home makeover shows, I'm assuming there's quite a bit of product yeah. placement in those in those sorts of things and partnership deals. So it's kind of how you you know how you get into those sorts of paid areas. Mm. But then also, I think we will see increasing subscription fatigue as people you know as as people sort of suddenly realize how skint they are towards the end of the month and they realize how much money is flying out to you know this weekly newsletter that you haven't opened the last two editions of mm-hmm. or something and i think we'll get we'll get more sort of sneaky workarounds like people sharing passwords and stuff i know you know this happens quite a lot with the tv streamers already yeah. but i think we'll see more of those sorts of things and especially as you know as is very likely we go into recession and people are losing their jobs, you know, en masse, then I think we will see, um, you know, quite a lot happening around that. So almost sort of, so almost a situation where the people who've got it right already uh, are probably in a good position to profit, but the people who haven't really got to that point are going to be quite under threat. But then what that also means, I think, sorry, final point, what that also means, I think, is that a lot of the publishers are going to be much more open to doing quite deep integrations with brands rather than just selling them adverts you know to sort of let the brands be much more part of Mm. the content which is being produced yeah good point the next one so i'll we've we've a couple more to go but we'll uh, we'll chat as i say people can read the article or or read the full report but i just want to talk about a couple more so the one the next trend you want to talk that you wrote about is what you call responsible media and it it kind of goes a little bit back to the one the societal trend about privacy the the Um, great divide yeah yeah, and privacy it's a a bit of the privacy thing it's a bit of the great divide thing but it's also a bit about the paid media thing as well in that you know i do think the ad ecosystem is under threat from multiple multiple factions one is the idea that certainly things like user-generated content it's not just brand safety of what is my ad appearing next to Mm -hmm. it's sort of societal safety in terms of these people producing this user-generated content which is getting you know thousands of views a day what are those people like you know what i'm i'm basically paying for that i'm basically supporting their lifestyle lifestyle what is their lifestyle what is their political position am i uh you know who are we funding with this and we've seen over the past few months people like facebook particularly but also twitter youtube taking much more responsibility over the people on their platforms and you know demonetizing people taking content off all that sort of stuff so i think we'll see we'll see an awful lot more of that and i think brands working with their agencies just need to be super sure they're doing everything they can to make sure a that they're not funding the nasty people uh, they're not funding people who are essentially not making society a better place but then also um, they're using their advertising budgets to ensure that we have you know a really diverse and vibrant media media landscape you know that it's not simply the big partners got like 100 percent of the ad spend essentially Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think the the big guys can do more than they're currently doing i think they could definitely do more they can do it if they want but it's one thing i spoke to jerry dakin last year about this Mm -hmm. i think brands have a role to play so i just want to get your view on this because if we have green lists and red lists about about content words topics that we're happy for our brands to appear beside this content so if we if we take COVID-19 if we block content around that or you know if we if we if we take racism or we block certain things if we don't want to be part of that dialogue well actually then we suffocate the oxygen from the publishers that 
they need because not all the discourse around any issue is negative it's not all harmful so you, there's positive stories about potentially negative issues when you oh, look yeah. at them beyond the keyword level so do you think there's responsibility on, on brands to make sure that they are and I don't know if, if the technology exists but to make sure that they're not you know with, with, the, with the sweep of one brush you know not giving oxygen to, to these stories because if, if they can't be funded yeah. if everyone stays away from them they will not appear and that's not a good thing yeah yeah totally I think um yeah, I think I think some of the keyword blocking, you know, I think there's just no real granularity in it. There's no real understanding of what the content is. Mm. It's just very binary. I was talking to a friend who works for a newspaper and I said, your, your site, you know, this was like in the summer. I said, your site stats must be insane. Mm. Number of page views you're getting. He said, oh, yeah, it is. But we can't monetize it because people, nobody wants yeah. to advertise next to an article that has the word COVID or yeah. coronavirus on it. And you just thought, well, that's crazy because yeah. there's there's so much variety in these articles that we use these topics. Yeah. And I can see why people might not want to appear in some of them, but in the other ones, yeah, perfectly fine. You know, it's yeah. just a very popular news article. So Yeah, exactly. And it's true for any discussion around any topic that the issue might be a sensitive issue, but the the, the editorial, the position on it from the, the author, that could be something that's badly needed to add to the narrative. So yeah, yeah I think we, we'll hopefully see the big guys do a bit more. The last three that I want to talk about, they're somewhat related, or at least from what I was reading, I kind of put them in, in a bucket because they're in a similar space are called the Metaverse Social Screening and Joining the Dots. And they essentially talk about a convergence of services or, or experiences and yep. the blending of digital behaviours with offline behaviours um, in the case of social screening. So in the interest of time, can you just talk me through at a top line level these three trends and then just tell me a little bit about what they are and some thoughts on, on how brands need to think about them as they enter their, do their marketing budgets for this year? Of course. So the first one we call the metaverse, and it's really the sort of evolution of gaming into being a much more social space. So it's almost like Ready Player One, although obviously we're not not quite there yet. But it's the idea that, you know, when you're playing a game, essentially you're with your friends, you're in Mm. a space, you're in a place with your friends. And that's what media has always been really interested in. I think a lot of people in marketing, if they're not gamers, are kind of confused about how you would engage like this. But if you actually think, if you actually think of it in terms of it's essentially social media and you have you have advertising opportunities, you have influencers in the way of streamers, then you can suddenly much more easily get your head around how you can advertise, how you can participate in these spaces. So that's the first one. The second one um, is really an extension of that, and it's what we call social social screening, but other people would refer to it as virtual watch parties. And this is, um, you know, where you might watch a movie at the same time as your friend, each sitting on your own sofa in your own home. So it's it's and it's really just like a digital extension of you know, you're watching a football match with your friend, you're both on WhatsApp together, or you're watching, uh, you, you know, you're watching a, a reality show or something. Yeah. But now it's possible to do these within the same platform. So Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitch and other services allow you to essentially integrate these things with the chat. Mm-hmm. So you're all within within one place. You've got your own sort of watch party. And then the third one is about how the tech giants, so Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, others are essentially 
not only are they competing with each other directly, which is something we talked about in last year's report, but they're now joining up the dots between the different elements of what they do. And Amazon's probably the best example of this in that until a couple of years ago, Amazon didn't really talk about Twitch, its its video game esports streaming service. And you know, you I knew a lot of people who didn't really know that Amazon owned Twitch. Yeah. Um, but now they're integrating elements of Twitch, integrating technology into lots of other things. And as a classic example, if you're a band on Amazon Music, you can now simply you know, very simply just click on a button and then you're playing a gig from your front room or from your studio to all your fans because yeah. it uses Twitch technology and Amazon has simply you know, joined the different bits of the, the services it owns. And I think we're just seeing this greater level of synergy between all of the, the different um, bits and pieces that the tech giants own, potentially to create some really uh, sort of seamless ad experiences, mm. ad opportunities for our clients. So, there's loads there um, and we, we didn't, you know, we re- literally just scratched the surface on some of them. So final thought, where had the big trends, societal trends and the smaller kind of hot topics in media, where they intersect is quite an interesting space. And you and again, anyone who's interested, I, I urge you to download the full report and read it because there's great things in there. How do you prioritize these? If you're a marketer listening to this or a brand, somebody in the marketing department or an agency and you're listening to this podcast, and you're going, wow, there's just so many things going on. Um, how do you go through navigate all these trends and find out which ones you should prioritize, which ones are for you. Have you any advice on how to get around this and how to go from trends, which is often navel gazing and looking into far into the future, but actually making them practically and actually trying to do things around them and test and learn, if you will. So, so we want this, we want this report to be as practical as possible. We want people to think about, you know, these are the trends that are most relevant to us. And if we look at the intersections between those, then these are particular things that we can do. For example, putting augmented reality triggers on packaging if you're a mm. consumer packaged goods company, or um, maybe, you know, if you're a brand that has a lot of fans who do a certain sort of thing, then potentially, you know, bundling in with some products access to a paid service which is which is special for that so uh you know that there's a lot of i mean you know having things like a netflix subscription is is a is has real social cachet in society and not everybody can afford that so if you as a brand could potentially give people x months access to this or even you know have find some way to get a license to let them watch a particularly highly sought after piece of content, whether it be a recent movie or something, then I think that, that there's lots of ways that brands can get involved with this. Sorry, I know we're running out of time. I think we, I think I shouldn't have talked so much about, um, about no. pandemics and things. No, we had, we had a lot, we but, had a lot uh, to get through. I knew it was going to, but it, we're fine. We're okay. We're, we're fine. But essentially, you know, so what we've, what we've done and you can find this within the document is we created a grid that people can um, people can go through to look at you know how the long term trends intersect with the short term ones and think about how these particularly uh, resonate with their audiences within their categories um, you know based on things like the tech readiness of the market they're dealing with the particular mm. audience and what the audience does and then really try to brainstorm how you could find something that fits within this particular box. So yeah. some sort of intersection of these different elements and try to be creative around the different sorts of, uh, you know, the, the different sorts of things it might suggest to you. 
Yeah, cool. Okay, Dan. Well, I've taken more of your time than I promised I would, but I knew because I, no, no, I knew no I knew, I knew when really I sent the it. questions, we I said but we've a lot to cover, and I feel like we literally just kind of danced around some of the issues. So again. Check out Dan's article. It's in the Irish Times today and you'll find the link to um, the full report there or check it out where we mentioned earlier in the podcast. So thanks to Andrea on sound and thanks to our partners, Irish Times Media Solutions. So until next time in two weeks time, bye-bye, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.